Welcome to Adopting Zero Trust, an independent podcast that dives into the world of zero trust and tells the story of people who are adopting it. Throughout our series, we'll investigate why zero trust is becoming a critical concept for cybersecurity. Our hosts, Elliot Volkman and Neil Dennis, will have transparent and open conversations with the people driving modern security approaches forward while leaving vendor hype behind. It's time to remove implicit trust and buzzwords and get to the root of the movement. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Adopting Zero Trust, or AZT. I'm Elliot, your producer, alongside Neil Dennis, your co-host and the mouth of our episode. And today we are going to be chatting about cybersecurity from the top down. In a moment, we'll introduce you to our guest, Chris, who works at one of the largest organizations that we will probably ever chat with and certainly have to date about cybersecurity in general, which is just, as Chris lovingly called it a minute ago, is kind of like a mind-boggling experience. So it is, it's difficult to kind of wrap your head around how a 90 plus thousand account organization can prevent cyber cyber attacks and build in these programs. But that is what we're going to be chatting about today. Obviously, we have RSA coming up and both Neil and Chris will be there. So we'll jump into that a little bit. But Chris, you know, if you don't mind, can you give us a little bit of background on your quite extensive LinkedIn resume? Sure. Happy to. And Neil and Elliot, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really really, really excited about being here and just having pragmatic mm-hmm. discussions, I guess we can say. So yes, I am with Kindrel. For those of you who don't know what a Kindrel is, about a year and a few months ago, IBM split its services component off. And so that's about 90,000 people. And so we were spun off into a completely independent company. Our focus is, or historically has been on IT outsourcing, but we're moving you know, from or pivoting from IT outsourcing to more technology services. And so what we're delivering to the market is really management of mission critical systems. So we do a lot of work with very large companies, you know, financial services, other critical infrastructure industries, in you know managing infrastructure yeah, it includes you know pretty much anything mainframes to cloud infrastructure refactoring applications network transformations you know digital workplace experience you know my role at Kindrel is to do really two things one is i am the leader of the security business unit so that's the group that kind of builds and delivers security resilience capabilities and then second, I am responsible for commercial risk. So, you know, all of the customers with whom we work, they have a set of contracts that we are, you know, sort of adhere to, plus they also pose a risk to us. And so my team looks after sort of the implementation of control around those organizations. And so, you know, just by way of background, I've been in space 30 some odd years and have been on lots of different sides of this equation. I've had the blessing of being at three startups and with successful exits, which is, I still don't know how that happened. I've been a CISO. I was at the IBM for many years as the chief security officer and ran the business unit, had some other stints along the way, but now I'm here at this 90,000 person startup and trying to keep my head from <laughs> bursting into flames every single day. So that's where I am. Love it. So as we had mentioned, that is obviously a very large organization or startup now since you've spun out from IBM in the most recent years. And having been exposed to IBM in general, I think you had a little break in there where you were kind of working with some other organizations. But what did that look like 
moving from those smaller orgs to now nothing more nothing less than essentially a mothership of just people and infrastructure you know how how do you wrap your head around something so gargantuan and shifting from something smaller to larger like that you know it's it's funny it is it is way different being at a smaller at a smaller startup of you know 15, 20, 30 people than being in a 90,000 person startup. Absolutely. I think interestingly, there is a kind of an inverse relationship to drama in smaller companies. So when you're in a smaller company, you tend to focus, you've got like a, you know, a silo of focus, you focus on one thing and the people around you, you tend to get really, really, really close to like weirdly close to. And so, and when you're an executive within a smaller company, every, the people with whom you work, their problems become your problems. And so it's kind of that family dynamic is almost closer. And when you're with a larger organization, you're the surface of the problems that you deal with, you get a little bit ADD, you're dealing with so much, but you're only scratching the surface. And so, and you have a larger team and you're working with a lot more people, but the drama isn't quite as exhaustive. So I would say, you know, weirdly when you're speaking, you know, we're small companies, large companies, I'd say the real difference is the extent to which you can kind of engage with the humans in a, in a lot of ways. And I, I kind of, when I'm with the startup, I love it, but I also... I get kind of overwhelmed by the emotion. Those of you know people who've worked with me, they know I kind of lead from the front. That's mm. kind of my thing. I really like to get my hands dirty, and the being it, it's a pretty emotional experience for me. And then when you work with a bigger company, you kind of miss that. So it's like you're never mm -hmm. really in the sweet spot. But I've learned yeah, to navigate that absolutely makes between sense. the two. So I think from a philosophical philosophical perspective, which is gonna probably the majority of how, how we'll take this conversation is. I think obviously at the end of the day, you know, preventing attacks, securing organizations, securing the brands, securing the people and technology, you know, that's the simple answer, simple thread between something, you know, five person company and 90,000 person company. But I'm wondering if you sort of have like a, a systematic approach that you are able to just navigate between them, regardless of organizational size. Obviously there is that one thing that you might do in a small org, but is it, you know, a focal point of prevention? Is that like the key player that you try to bring in? Or, you know, is it even just starting with like bringing the value of cybersecurity to the organization? You know, I'm wondering if there's maybe a thread that you kind of start around like cybersecurity at a leadership level. Yeah. And so, you know, and it's funny because I, I, I kind of abstract hmm. Myself as a leader from myself as a cyber practitioner in a way, but the, the two things come together. So one of the things, you know, as a leader, let me just say whatever, you know, sort of business that I'm focusing on at any given day, the one common thing that I always come back to is this sort of the point of empathy. You know, at the end of the mm -hmm. day, we work with people. That it's and you know whether you're in cybersecurity or any other industry, it's all about relating to people, understanding what people care about, helping people understand why they should care about something, and then as a leader, having you kind of follow up, the, follow you up the hill, 
even though it may not be something that they want to do. So leadership is, is about that. It's about sort of creating that empathy and getting them to move with you, rowing in the same direction, regardless of whether you're in a big company or in a small company. Now, cybersecurity, I think, is one of those areas where the, the ability to be a true leader in that kind of the dynamic of creating empathy around an issue that people feel a lot of anxiety about but don't necessarily understand, that is, that is something that I've kind of learned to practice and th- has made me, in a way, a much better leader. Because, you know, cyber is one of those, you know, areas where there's just, you know, it was, it was interesting. I was talking to on the Homeland Security, uh, mm-hmm. one of the senators who's on the Homeland Security Committee, and he was talking about the fact that th- this is the case. It creates, cybersecurity creates anxiety for him, but he just doesn't understand mm-hmm. it, right? He just doesn't get it. And so, and it, it just struck me that it is so true that, to help people in understanding cyber, in implement, in identifying and implementing controls, being part of the army to do that, the leadership of those people, the leadership of those businesses, that's all kind of one and the same. So ho- hopefully that makes I, I think I think it's a good approach to the construct. And, you know, I think there's a special place in, or there needs to be a special place in in corporations for people who can have that kind of conversation and be a little bit more empathetic towards the plight. Cause you know, on the tactical technical side, we always, you know, younger years would make fun that if the CEO opens the spam, you know, that you're sending him for test and trial, right? If he opens up your little test email, well, you obviously can't kick him out of the company, but if the guy three steps before him underneath him does, what's the, what, what's the remuneration? What's the actual, problem that you're trying to solve and how are you going to solution it with that person because you can't tell a ceo not to open up his email you just got to figure out how to work around it but the guy's three steps below you're going to punish probably unjustly for the same exact mistake that you can't follow through with up and down the entire chain and i think that lack of of capability every direction ends up causing that gap in reality because the ceo never sees what what the punishment is for doing something bad unless it's a legit high impact event that does legitimately impact the dollars of the company, right? Yeah. So there is a disparity as you grow between the, the ranges. Yeah, and more, I think more importantly is, you know, in, in this particular field, and, I, you know, I talk about this a lot, is the fact that, you know, most organizations today kind of invest in the security person all accountability for security, right? So there is an assumption that somebody is going to wear a magic cape and they're going to magically with a bunch of fairies, they're going to fix the security problem and it ain't going to work. You know, and I was just having this discussion just this morning with a CERT organization who is, you know, they were sort of saying, okay, well, you know, we're having a problem hiring people and, you know, it's so complex. And I said, okay, stop, just let's just stop. Let's just talk about this act, the actual problem here. You know, for me, the problem is most businesses don't a recognize that. You know, let's talk about the last few years. They bought a lot of technology for existential reasons it, it, during the COVID period. It was oftentimes individual business units that acquired that technology without an overall architecture or strategy. Meanwhile, they did this on top of a whole bunch of legacy infrastructure that they've amassed over the years. So this is strategy less, it is architecture less. 
You've got all of this stuff that they've brought into the organization. Guess what? Stuff, that complexity introduces risk. That risk has to be managed by humans. No one can hire enough humans to manage the complexity that most of our organizations have. So by God, simplify the infrastructure so that you don't have as many people that have to manage it, so that not as many people are gonna make mistakes because guess what? Technology plus people equals you're gonna make mistakes. I, I, it's, you know, it's just statistical probability. So, you know, I, I keep telling people, I, I get the need to build and want more tools and to invest in more really cool capability and to want to hire more people. It's not gonna work. It's not gonna work. There isn't enough money out there in the world for us to spend on security and get to Nirvana. And so we've got to think about this in a profoundly different way. And again, going back to kind of that question of how do you navigate small, large, at the end of the day, security is about people. It's about people that make mistakes. And to, to fix the security problem, we have to figure out how to address that. And again, tools is not necessarily the answer. Sometimes it's as simple as being empathetic to how users engage with your technology and simplifying that experience and simplifying the underlying infrastructure so that the people that are managing it can do so in a more sort of simple and effective way. I know that sounds easy. It, it, I, I get it's hard, but it's just, it's looking at it from a different perspective. I, I think that's wonderful, actually. I mean, th this will transition us into the zero trust portion of this chat here in a few seconds. But I, I think the perspective you bring, it, it's, it's awesome. It's something that ironically, you know, poetically rather, I mean, a couple of webinars I've been doing for my current company, 95 AI. We, we see very similar things where people have obviously, like you said, bought a lot of things over the COVID years that they probably shouldn't have bought or that they thought they should buy, but they don't know where it actually lies. But then they've got all this legacy. They've got all this new. They don't know how that works. So to your point, people are now attempting to throw actual people at the problem. And the one thing I remember the most about going through my project management professional certification is you don't just start throwing people at a new at the same problem. You yeah. got to actually figure out how to actually solution the problem before getting more people in the room. 100%. And the last piece of that that I love, yeah, the, the last thing I like, you know, there, there's a quote that I'm not going to be able to remember from scratch without it being in front of me, but there's a gentleman, J.C.R. Licklider from the 60s that wrote this, this wonderful paper about man-computer symbiosis and how at some point in time we're going to have to find a way to work together and only through truly understanding how automation and in his case, orchestration as well, can come together with the human, can we actually realize the closest thing to your, to your statement, Nirvana, and anything that we do? We're never gonna get there, but we have ways to make it better. And to kind of transition us into the fun part here, I, I think kind of the impetus behind this with the zero trust mentality is, you know, we should be able to allow the CEO and three stages down to have the same, you know, flows that they need day to day. And the downside is on us security people, we had to figure out how to set that up. But I think with zero trust as a mindset, you know, if we set up the CEO the right way, when he clicks on that email, nothing should happen right. at the end of the day, right? And same thing with the guy who's down three layers deep that clicks on a very similar email and it actually is malicious. Nothing should happen if we set up the right trust environments around zero trust mentality. So anyway, I, I, I love your, your approach to the, the facts here and, and the way it goes at it. So in that vein, kind of thinking about that from a hierarchical perspective in the zero trust mentality, you know, being able to build into 
legacy and current infrastructure and maybe consolidate to where not so many things talk to so many things, right? And I think it's kind of the impetus with zero trust is one of the tenets is things should only talk to the things they're supposed to. And if they're talking to something they're not supposed to, why? Yeah. So I mean, from your perspective at the scale, you know, and you mentioned critical infrastructure, maybe we'll go down that one too, because I love OTIT relationships. <laughs> yeah. But from your perspective, how this size of a company, how do you think that that breaks down to kind of start applying that, that human interface loop along with the actual security arm piece and get people to understand we got to fix people, but we also need to make sure the right tech stack is actually starting to be built around all that. Yeah. And I think there, there's a couple of this, you're picking on a, a big topic and I, and I, what I would say is, you know, please take yeah. everything I'm saying through with the filter of different patterns apply to different corporations with of different sizes, with different cultures, different risk tolerances, et cetera. So there is no perfect answer for any given organization. So I would say that flat out. The second thing I would say is, and you didn't ask me this question, but I'm gonna point out something that is fundamentally impacting our ability to protect critical infrastructure and not all critical infrastructure, but a lot of infrastructure like water, utilities, other quasi-public or even private organizations that are regulated, highly regulated, what people don't understand is that the economics of how organizations, let's take like a water facility, how they build their plans, their capital plans in two or three year cycles bring those plans to the government, get them approved, and then can't really spend within that window, that is a real problem. And so what I would say is for a lot of those or institutions that use OTIT and are seeing this convergence, we got a problem. And the problem ain't security. The problem is how we fund security. And so they are just simply not agile enough. And until the government takes a look at sort of the funding process for capital associated with cybersecurity within these rate cases, we're not gonna fix this. But let's park that for another day because I can get on my, my high horse on that subject. But let's just talking about zero trust. Zero trust, it, it's really, I love the, you know, what you just said, Neil, about the CEO double clicks on something and nothing happens. That's how I describe zero trust, quite honestly. It kind of encapsulates it, right? Because there is, most the C-suite, they don't not understand what this means, right? They don't like, they don't get zero trust. And I, I hear either the people that get it really glom onto it and then they don't understand how hard it is and what it means from a technology perspective, or they say, hmm, zero trust, that sounds like a really bad thing where I'm not gonna trust my employees and I trust my employees, right? So you get that sort of that dynamic. Anyway, I, I, liked, I liked your description. What I'd say with zero trust implementation is it is still a mindset. I think it is, I would, could probably count on one hand successful zero trust implementations. And I would say that I have not seen any large enterprise introducing zero trust successfully across the entire organization. Where I am seeing it successful is where the customers, A, recognize one fundamental truth that moving a legacy infrastructure to cloud 
does not equate to a modernization or transformation program. Now, I say that because a lot of zero trust, successful zero trust implementations have been implemented within a cloud infrastructure. And the cloud infrastructure is largely a fairly uniform infrastructure. Hybrid cloud obviously makes things harder. As I mentioned before, where you don't refactor an application to be cloud native, it makes it impossible. So again, where I find organizations successful is where they have implemented zero trust within the context of a modernization, a digital modernization program, where they understand they've got the bill of materials for that service, they've implemented the controls within that context, and they've created a, an environment in which you know, zero trust can be recognized. Hybrid, legacy, lots of on-prem legacy that makes it really hard. And the organizations that I see tackling that even somewhat effectively are the ones that are starting with kind of that minimum viable business service mindset where they're saying, I, I care about the service, I'm going to deconstruct that and I'm going to implement zero trust in and around the business service as opposed to trying to tackle my entire infrastructure. Yeah, I think that's well said. So it, it's, it is a weird thing. So I, I'm on, a, I'm on the vendor side of the house now. I used to be more full-fledged practitioner across a lot of different things and we get similar, similar questions around merging legacy on-prem with new cloud mentality stuff. Yeah. And I, I would, I definitely agree that if you go through the cloud providers, the nicety of it is pick your flavor of cloud. But once you're there, it, it's the same structural base. So you know what should be talking and what should be talking and what, and you should have the same ability to not necessarily copy paste, but have a good idea of how to copy paste your security practices and principles across that environment. And to your point, the moment you throw in something from your enterprise server farm, I mean, it might as well kind of get thrown out the door to some lesser extent. From y'all's perspective, you know, from addressing on-prem pieces, you know, in, in that growth phase, you know, is, is kind of the mentality there, hey, it, it is really kind of a good time place to have a legit modernization towards cloud infrastructure for the sake of both maybe cost, but also maybe for the sake of security or, or you know, are you able to kind of coach both sides of it and say, okay, on-prem, but if this, and we can make that more modern as well as approach it with that hybrid mentality. You know, it's interesting. What I'm seeing a big trend toward is a lot of organizations are actually undergoing modernization programs, not simply because they're trying to kind of improve whatever to get to that business outcome, reduce costs. That's always a you know major driver, but it's really the security resiliency sort of positive outcomes that they can get through that modernization program, which is actually kind of the thing that gets the program over the precipice, if you will. So simply said, people are modernizing because there's no other way for them to achieve better overall security and resiliency. They cannot do it with the complexity that they have in place. They do want to achieve kind of a zero trust mindset. And they also recognize that ain't going to be possible with what they've got today. And so I do think, you know, it's, it's, you know, for me, when I go talk to clients, you know, most of the time they're expecting that I'm going to tell them about some new whiz bang tool, you know, Hey, are you using AI to do better threat detection? It's like, no, are you able to patch your systems? If the answer is no, go simplify. <laughs> no, like start at the basics. 
but Lord. it's but yeah that that's the conversation I, i'm having with you know organizations is zero trust is not possible unless you have a good identity management system do you know your identities do you know where your assets are do you understand your networks you know it's like come on let's focus on the basic i think yeah, that's nail on the head right there. I think that's been a wonderfully recurrent theme for us with most people is basics and most people missing out on it. And I, I think this is a Disney movie in the making, you know, like the Miracle and some of the other ones where they, you know, the sports team shows up, pick a flavor. They all stink. But what do they do? The, every thematic of every one of those successful sports team movies, they went right back to the basics. And then they, they were successful, right? At least for the first season. Then you find out two years later, they all died in a plane crash or something. <laughs> Or windy, but they they had a good year. Back to the basics, right? But (laughs) but they did great when they went back to the basics. Now they're a little carnivorous. But that being said, you know, I I think that that's kind of the wonderful echo of all this stuff is. And for my twenty, this twenty twenty three, for my twenty two years of doing something remotely related to security, intel, and all this other stuff, I've seen the same exact questions every year and they very rarely get answered the right way or in a timely fashion like you mentioned you know can you control your identity access can you control the people in the environment from a digital fingerprint perspective do you know what your assets are and we've been asking that same question since we plugged something in and the solutions that try to support that are basically the same things that were there 20 years ago they haven't really in my opinion gotten a lot better at doing that job I think the human in the loops have gotten a little better, mm-hmm. but the technology for doing that hasn't per se. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's wonderful. I think it's right in par with everything else. You know, we're step one. Step one is back to the basics. Get to the line and do your calisthenics, and then you'll you'll shoot a goal hoop score of whatever it is for your sports analogy people out there. <laughs> I'm not a sporty person. so Yeah, no, I, I tend to. But that being said, no, it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. On that same vein. Yeah. No, I was going to say, I'm much I run more, a lot. I don't I'm much do more Lord, balls. Yeah, I use the Lord of the Rings analogies most of the time, and most people are like, what? what? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Trivial Pursuit, Lord of the Rings champion right yeah. here. So you're good. Oh, you're there you talking go. Talking with, with a kindred spirit. That being on that vein, though, you know, back to the basics. I, I think, you know, kind of keeping in that, that trend there. But, you know, we talk about identity access management. We talk about asset control. So, I mean, you know, moving things to a cloud environment systemically, I think from what I've seen, kind of means you're inherently just by proxy more aware of what it is you're you're doing business with tooling wise because you're paying a third party to host your product. So at least you know roughly what it should be versus some random engineer in a closet setting it up, right? I had a question to that, but the Lord of the Rings reference totally threw me off. So we're good to go. <laughs> Moving down the road with it. Thinking about you know some of the additional parameters there. So let's say we do get the basics out of the way. We, we figure out, identity access management control how important to you from from the growth phase of this if we can solve that one problem how much do you think that impacts the larger picture as you start to build and progress because i see people that go way out here and forget about the the digital access control pieces and they do something else like trying to just secure a server to a server and they forget about the people in the loop and what all that means yeah and i, mean, I you know, kind and of I, fixated on the that piece yeah and i i would say it's fundamental i mean in you know my head at least everything on the internet, whether it's a person, whether it's a, you know, an ITS, an OT device, whatever it is, you know, any device, you know, particularly in a 5G world, that device has an identity. And so we've got to abstract the fact that, you know, one is, you know, yes, different assets that interact on networks 
have, there's a physicality to them. And there's a sort of within the context of that physicality, there's a certain type of behavior that one would expect and a certain way in which that thing is going to interact with all other things. But these things on the internet, whether that be human, sort of a, you know, sort of a carbon-based life form or a silicone-based life form, you know, these things are becoming much more similar over time than unlike. And so what I would say is sort of this concept of, of being able to think about technology, a carbon-based and silicone-based life forms as having identities and being, and I hate to say it, but assets that are have to be sort of deployed and maintained within a repository. And then having to think about sort of the seams between those things and how those things interact, I think we've got to kind of change our mindset. And so I would say that, you know, my prediction is over the next few years, we're going to see kind of that concept of identity management, asset management really come together in a really significant way. And I do think that, you know, as we are, you know, the one good thing I can say about AI is it is forcing us to rethink kind of silicone versus carbon-based and, you know, sort of the interactions between those two. And I can also say, you know, I've got, you know, for those, and I'm sure you're kind of up to speed on some of the medical, you know, sort of device, sort of thing. I mean, the, with wearables, et cetera. I mean, we're entering into a new space. And, and I do think in some ways, because the barrier, because the, the boundaries between these things are kind of disintegrating in a way, it's, it's, it's gonna make it a little bit easier for us to manage things, in a, but we'll see. No, that's neat. I, I think it's an appropriate aspect with, well, we just had a wonderful interview about kind of cell phone technology and, and some echelons of, you know, doing away with the phone number per se and having that digital ID be you. And so when I go to dial a number, I'm not dialing a number, I'm literally dialing you in a persona perspective. And then I think with blockchain and the growth of everything there, that, that digital fingerprint of who you are and being able to call that digital fingerprint, whatever it is, as an asset control mechanism or, or management perspective, I, I do think we're not too far off from that reality, loosely based. Yeah. And then, you know, We've got these these behavioral analytic type security appliances out there, and, and Elliot should be probably haven't brought this up in like at least the last five interviews. But we've got these things that do like the biometric fingerprints of a user, right? So trying to do away with passwords and things like that for security purposes. And at the end of the day, it's still ones and zeros. It's still a fingerprint of some sort, whether it's a password or your how you type on a keyboard. But I, I love the idea of well. The security guy who likes privacy doesn't, but the guy who likes the idea of security and being more secure and controlling that fingerprint likes the idea of being able to come on, have voice, have fingerprints, have keyboard type patterns. And then the, the even weird things like the reflection of the light or the power that my Wi-Fi is registering, things like that all become kind of an enablement for who I am as a persona and be able to use that in my security profiling and, you know, echelons of complication later, someone will eventually figure out how to duplicate all that stuff. But I think that's kind of an interesting way of doing it. My phone plus me is an identity. Me without my phone, I can't do anything Right. in a roundabout world, right? Yeah, I think that that question, you're bringing up an important point, though, is that kind of contention between privacy and security. We just have not, you know, I, 
it's it's really interesting, you know, for me as you know, and it's a gen, it's also oftentimes it's a it's not just a cultural thing, but it's a generational thing. And I'm seeing kind of privacy for you know younger Americans is equivalent to control, right? So they've been kind of schooled, particularly with social media, that you know privacy to me is the ability to control the data that I share with others. You know, whereas you know looking at Europe, it's much more about anonymity. I don't, you know, it's going to be interesting when we get into the debate about the national privacy law here, you know, when it comes more, you know, more up for public debate, it's going to be interesting to see which way the chips fall, whether we become more like Europe or we can t stay true to that kind of post 9-11, you know, security kind of outweighs privacy. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. But another one of my subjects that I love to talk about is prognosticating on that area. Who knows? Well, if you're at, at RSA, I would love to pick your brain on the OT side of the house, as well as this one. You know, the bill that, that is obviously rightly pending right now for discussion in Congress has a lot of ramifications for, for our privacy. But like yeah. you mentioned, different topic. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. So, no, but, you know, it, it's still just in vain, though. It, it's still one of those deals with, I, I'm a firm believer, whatever you're doing in a corporate office is not private, or and it shouldn't be private if it especially if it potentially impacts the security of that environment. And this could just be the fact that I worked at a couple of three-letter agencies where nothing is private when yeah. you're there, no matter what. They even track when you leave your desk and other fun things. But, you know, and then I think your home life, you know, back to the own your data, own your access to that data, what makes you you. I think that to me is a very good tenement of where some of these zero trust implementation type companies, startups, whatever you want to, whatever they are, are trying to look at things where they have multi pieces, multi layers to what makes my fingerprint me. And if I don't want to give you my actual fingerprint for my digital ID, okay, well then maybe it's, you know, maybe it's a voice print. Maybe it's none of those. Maybe it's nothing physical. Maybe it's a couple other different echelons, right? And I, I think for me that that's kind of the right approach for now is, you know, you've got a factor of like 10 things. If you only fill out three, the trust is down here. If you fill out four, you steadily go up the trust echelons of what can and can't be done. Right. Yeah, it's going to be a unique problem set for sure. Chris, on, on the rest of this, so from kind of thinking more about the implementation side before we go down the RSA rabbit hole, mm -hmm. we Ellie brought up some fun points, startup versus large-scale corporation and things like that. I, I think fundamentally, like you mentioned, people problem. And if you've got a little more to say or you want to share about that, I, I love that mentality. I find that that's, that is a hard hurdle to overcome is the trust within the people. And then the last aspect of that you talk about you mentioned kind of loosely about, you know, what happens to people when, when that person gets overwhelmed in the security stack, right? And the old school thing is, if you're the CISO, congratulations, go get a new job. Yeah. We've seen a little less of that, thankfully. Mm -hmm. But I think part of the people problem is making sure people understand that the security mechanism as a human is fallible and that there's room to grow, hopefully. Yeah, no, and I, you know, what I'm seeing, it's interesting, a lot of the sort of, you know, we get regulated by, you know, pretty much every regulator that's out there, and there's been an increasing trend to start really focusing on governance and management of cybersecurity within three lines of defense. But in changing, it used to be that, you know, security was kind of the first line of defense. So think about security as kind of implementing, operating the tools. It's the guidance is now that security needs to really be in the identification of risk, the identification of controls to manage the risk and the monitoring of those controls. 
that the first line function is not actually security. The first line function or can be a little bit of security, but the first line function is really just the employee, is the IT organization, et cetera. And I think that mindset makes a lot of sense is to give everybody the responsibility of managing security as opposed to just like investing in that one organization. But you know, I, I did want to talk, but I did want to just touch on tools though, because I do think technology does have a really important role here to play. And I think that there is just an amazing amount of innovation that is occurring within the security sphere. I see it every day. I do think it is a real tough job to be a, in a startup in security right now, to be honest though. You know, if you think about how the, the market is, has been evolving, a lot of these security startups, they, why do they pop up? They pop up because they want to solve a very specific, very narrow problem. And the reason they do it that way is because that narrow problem can be paid for by a business case that was established either because a, a company had a crisis and they need their bleeding and it's like the, the crisis du jour, like ransomware, and they're going to fix that problem better than anybody else. Or alternatively, there's a new regulation out there that says you have to do something, right? So I've seen it, you know, over the years, these pop-ups, it's like security intelligence this month. And, you know, now this, I bet in RSA, we're going to see, you know, talking about RSA, it's going to be resilience. Everybody's going to be talking about resilience. And I, I, I feel for these companies because they solve a narrow problem, but they have to get market. And so they say they do everything. And so it gets to a point where, you know, I get, I can't even tell you how many vendors are reaching out to me in any, any given day. And I swear, I, I try to be a really nice person, but I can't talk to all of them. I just can't, I don't have enough time. And I know that a lot of them have really good technology, but by God, if you don't actually have somebody who's paying you money to use that technology and that person isn't willing to talk to me, I can't talk to you. So, you know, I think that we've got a situation in the security market. I don't know what the answer is, but there's way too many tools out there, too many good ones. And I feel terrible, but a lot of them are gonna, are gonna continue to struggle because there's just not enough market to go around. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. You know, I think that was the one unfortunate thing out of COVID was, I think we were really close to a course correction from that perspective to have more consolidation of concepts. And I think courtesy of COVID, there was a lag because I, I am a victim of part of this temporary lag from a startup I was at where we couldn't get our funding the first, you know, for our, our whatever. And that being said, after about six months of COVID woes, everything kind of went, did this. And then everyone like, well, is it really going to go down? Is it going to go down? And then it just kind of went up for almost two years straight again. And I think all these technology companies that should have been consolidated or, or thrown to the curb just because they didn't have client base or they couldn't build their brand. I think they got a, a bit of a buffer courtesy of the COVID growth that some of them probably shouldn't have gotten. Yeah. But I agree. I think there's a reckoning, not just from a financial closure issues, but just in general, I think the reckoning is upon us a little bit here. And, uh, and I think it's going to be a good deal. I think it needs to happen. Yeah. So hopefully but, uh, yeah, we'll see where we land. Yeah. It's pretty heartbreaking though, because there are a lot of good companies with a lot of good people with a lot of good technology that actually solve really important problems. But unfortunately there's only so many companies that can solve one. Yeah, that's true. So on that note, you mentioned, I guess maybe, I don't know if Ellie, if you had anything specific from an RSA perspective, but I feel like this is a wonderful transition. 
and resilience this, resilience that. I, I'm very curious to see what the token yeah, you, uh, word is. You actually hit the nail on the head. Obviously, sure. in years past, it was zero trust plaster and everything, and I'm sure you guys <laughs> fortunately see that. But, yeah, Chris, we would love your opinion on what you feel like. You know, Is resilience going to be plastered on every brand? Do you feel like it's going to be zero trust all over again? Where where do you feel like you're going to see like the hype circle really ramp up this year? Yeah, I think you're going to see, I still think we're going to see a lot of zero trust. I think particularly with CISA coming out, you know, mm -hmm. with their new guidance just today, I think, you know, you're going to still see a lot of it. But you know what, I, I think it's actually good because I think it's becoming more tangible. People really understand it more. So that's a good thing. That's one. I think resilience is going to be a big one. I think because of, and there's a number of different reasons for that. And I think I'm not unhappy that we're talking about cyber resilience. I just want to make sure we're talking about it the right way and not having everybody just slap the word on their, you know, on their banner again, but Dora, you know, and some of the governance requirements, even the stuff that's coming out of like the SEC for, you know, boards of directors worrying about, you know, cyber risk, not security, cyber risk broadly and anything that can happen to impact your digitally enabled services. That's a good thing. So I think resilience is going to be a big code word. I also think AI, you're going to begin to see a lot more of that. And I also think we're going to begin to see, and I really, it's like, I wish I could put a stake in the heart <laughs> of this one, but quantum resistance, right? I think we're going to begin to see that. I don't think anybody knows what it means, but I think we're going to begin to see that pop up on people's shingles. as. I saw at Gartner SRM last year, I saw two quantum quote unquote somethings at Gartner last year. And it's always intriguing when Gartner brings something into their, their conference from a, whatever weird nomenclature it is. Cause then, you know, they've, they've obviously got something in their quadrants built out for whether they yeah. published it or not. So yeah, that, that'll be a fun one for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But do you think resilience? So I, I'm, I think we've, we've been around a decent enough time to where we see things that we used to do 20 years ago are now what we're doing again now and we're just rebranding some of it labels wise nomenclature changes do you think resilience and and the framework that people are building is just a new way of trying to just get back to a compliance driven mentality at any level no. or do you think you know that like the old early 2000s 90s compliance mentality no i actually i'm actually a little bit more hopeful i see it as one of the problems i think with security and what has made us it, it's kind of our own fault in a lot of ways is we made our field so specialized and so narrow that it became really hard for business leaders to understand and to get behind, right? They don't, you know, when I talk to business leaders, they don't, they don't know what they're spending money on and they don't know what they're getting out of it. It's just, it's just a problem. And, you know, at the end of the day, the management of cyber is of, of security is about managing risk. And so it's being able to identify that risk, to understand how it can impact you, to implement the controls, to manage that risk, to monitor, measure, and report, and then recover when things go wrong. It's a, it's a risk management process. I think resilience is a, it's the first time I am seeing coherent business line discussions about bad stuff that can happen to IT. One of the bad things that can happen, cybersecurity attacks can be realized and something bad like ransomware can, you know, sort of impact my organization. 
Business leaders are not thinking about resilience within the context of its security, its privacy. They're thinking about it as bad stuff is going to happen. And it's the process of managing risk. Now, I think, Neil, the danger to your point on compliance is that a lot of, if you look at the national security strategy and some of the technical guidance that we believe is going to be coming out of DORA, NIST II, out of Europe, what we're seeing with you know, India with some of the you know, requirements, they're very prescriptive. They're prescriptive because the regulators are feeling nobody's paying attention to the risk management process, right? So I don't, I'm not sure that I would say resilience is driving the compliance orientation. I think it would have happened anyway. I would position it as resilience may add a layer of pragmatism around compliance because it was going to happen. I think resilience just becomes a way we can increase the aperture for business people to think more broadly. That's number one. And two is I'm hoping Dora, the first technical guidance that comes out is really going to be around a cyber risk management process as opposed to specific technical guidance. And if that's the case, it won't be out until June. But if that is the case, then I think actually it will be a really No, Chris, that's good to hear because like I said, I see all these things and that there is a, a, there's an ISA out there for business, business resilience and I forget what BRC. I'm not going to say their name the right way because I haven't looked at them in a while. But I, I think, no, that's, that's good to hear though. I'm glad for that take. I, I appreciate the insights on that because it's one that I haven't really driven down personally of hardcore. I, but I have, I am obviously concerned that it goes around full loop to where we just get back to that compliance, unfortunate. But no, that, that's smart though, because you talk about from actually having a legit conversation at a leadership level about what these technical aspects can be and what's impacting you more holistically. And as an Intel analyst, personally, that's the kind of conversation I've always been trying to have when I've been in an enterprise solution. I've always been trying to sit down with the C-suite, figure out what they think their actual financial risks are, or the risks in general, map those out to those technical use cases and have a bigger discussion with the teams as a whole. Yeah. So the CFO, pick a C person, they all have their own things that they think are risks, right? And trying to figure out not just from a SOC perspective, but across the entire infrastructure, how digital and physical real world things can impact them from an Intel persona's perspective yeah. and map all that out from a resiliency type mentality. Yeah. And, That's awesome. Yeah. And I think, but you know, what I worry about though, you know, is uh, I, I worry about nationalism. And I worry about, you know, talking about compliance. I think one of the biggest issues we've got right now is just this incredible balkanization of privacy requirements, data localization, digital sovereignty, AI ethics, you name it. I mean, it is just, it is a mess. And so, and each one of them is becoming more and more prescriptive in nature. And so I think, you know, for most larger corporations trying to deal with this, it's, it's a nightmare. Total I know a guy who knows. I know. And, and to your point, that <laughs> that's going to be a, a wonderful world of new startups trying to solve that same problem once again or transition into it, right? Yeah, yeah it, it'll be weird to see what comes of it, but it's nice to know the conversations are finally going what you think to be in the right direction. So that, that that's that's good to know. It, it is a legit worry of mine. So on that note, RSA once again yeah. throwing this back out there: trends and analysis, resilience. I'm going to go hunt down all the quantum booths because I am in 
I'm intrinsically curious about what they claim they're doing or what they're trying to mitigate, especially now that China claims that they can break, like, what was it, RSA, where were they at, to 2000, to the 2048 bit, supposedly, but it's, it's still financially not feasible. So yeah, it'd be fun to see all this stuff. Elliot, what else you got for us, sir? So obviously we've got RSA, we've got top down at the organizational level. So definitely covered on the philosophical angle. You did touch a little bit on AI. I was wondering if we could just, you know, pivot back that direction a little bit, only because I know that is a topic of interest for Neil. I'd say in probably like the last month, we've seen a couple of headlines come out and we do typically avoid headlines, but like basically organizations are... Incidentally, dropping proprietary code and things like ChatGPT and stuff like that. Do you, you know, since we're kind of on that kind of compliance and regulations and conversation, do you feel like AI is a little bit too far ahead of where it is today? And, you know, as an organization of your size, are you kind of paying attention to that and putting any kind of guardrails to prevent maybe like users from accidentally dropping in stuff when they don't really know where that falls to? Yeah, I mean, we're we're prohibiting the use, explicitly prohibiting the use of like ChatGPT, et cetera, within Kindle mm-hmm. for commercial purposes. What we've done is we've established a research team that's looking at the various use cases that in which we would want to sort of adapt and apply the technology or, and it's, this is specific to generative AI, not all forms of AI, but generative AI. So we've restricted that use and we're beginning to look at the use cases and then exploring how our customers are going to begin to use, use it. You know, my, I've got, you know, my, our, my last company, Blue Vector was a kind of an AI based threat detection tool that we had built and the way it worked is it was, and just a quick vignette on, on the subject. So what it did is we basically, we had access to a corpus of malware. And so from the threat intel community, and what we did is we took it, it supervised machine learning reinforcement. So theoretically generative, if you took the guardrails off. And so what we would do is we trained the model on what is malware look like. And then we got access to all the golden images for most of the major vendors. And we put that into the system. So you had a good probability model where you could predict good or bad based on kind of the the model that we trained. Now, the problem with the model was that, you know, oftentimes legitimate name brand vendors would offer us golden images of code that we thought were written really badly. Is it good software or is it bad software, (laughs) right? So again, you know, what I would say about AI is AI instantiates the values of the creator. And so we as humans don't, are not necessarily good at understanding and evaluating the veracity of the data, particularly today, we're seeing it again and again, the veracity of the corpus of data that is kind of streaming at us. AI, I think is incredibly valuable from the, you know, the potential that it offers. I think generative AI with no rules, no guardrails is problematic in today's world, because I don't know how you can, again, going back to the, it represents the values of the creator. How do you teach people what those values are? How do you teach them to interpret the outcomes based on the values of the individuals? And again, it was individuals who selected a corpus of data in which to train that model. 
I don't, I, I just don't, I don't understand it. And so I do think that some level of scrutiny has to be applied before these kinds of technologies are available for mass scale use, particularly when it comes to, you know, sort of any kinds of technologies that can potentially drive disinformation, misinformation, I, 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 it scares me to death. I absolutely love your take. And fortunately, you answered it in a way that I was kind of hoping to separate the AI that consumers know, like ChatGPT, Dolly, and those other things, which they're all getting to play with this new toy. But realistically, AI has had proper models like financial institutions use AI-powered models that'll like reach out a couple of months out. I think I was just chatting with some other organization who works at a very large auditing group. And they were, you know, AI has been around forever, but you wouldn't use AI to like model out for years in advance. And that's the difference I think at play here. And you, you nailed it. It's like, you know, obviously organizations need to be really smart about what they're using and how they're employing it. But there is like the consumer toys that people are getting to play with. And it's just like that lovely divide where like you all, you're building a research org to make sure and being proactive and figure out how to best use it before you're opening up those floodgates. And I think that'll help reduce risk, you know, unnecessarily preventing any kind of issues that could stem from that. Yeah, but I think it's going to be hard because I do think the technology is out ahead of the humans right now. And I don't know where we, I don't, you know, I'm not necessarily, I'm not worried about, you know, like how taking over the world, you know, but I, I do worry, I do worry about disinformation and misinformation that, that scares me. I will say I've gotten chat GPT to make me ransomware. So out of a test, <laughs> there you go. It, you know, it's got protected words, right? You can't literally, you, you can't go in there and tell it, Hey, make me ransomware, right? It, it, it's in its protected algorithm where it's a block, but what you can do is tell it to make you a wonderful piece of software that's able to encrypt things with the SHA pick a number, as well as build a server for you to host this particular file on and be able to remotely access and some other, I'm giving people ideas, but I think it's important <laughs> for people to know. Yeah. You know, I agree. It's way out there, but it's ahead of where we need to be from a security perspective. And it, it's, it's fun, but it's, it's got a little ways for us to go before we can keep up with it security wise. So, yeah. yeah. And now everybody's going to go out there and go make their own ransomware package, but you're welcome. Yeah. Thanks, Neil. <laughs> I'm not liable for <laughs> there you what go. you do with Make that caveat, GPT. please. No, so on, on that note, last, I know we're kind of up on time, but oh, go ahead. Please. No, no, I was just going to say, I, you know, I do think, though, going back to sort of that where we started about sort of empathy and this being a people thing, you know, I've been saying for some, you know, for a while that I think, you know, security is, is more almost, it's gotten to a point where it's, Technology is important, but the psychology, the ethics are almost equally important. And so, you know, we as, you know, cyber leaders, we have to learn to navigate that kind of world of, you know, humans and feelings and intent and purpose and mission and values and all that stuff, just as we are in, you know, sort of learning to navigate technology, because the things go hand in hand. That is true. I think that's a certified ethical hacker when it used to be. <laughs> When it was the first one to the mark, I'm not going to call it not worthwhile. It's still a worthwhile cert. That was the whole impetus behind half the class was, I mean, ethical yeah. hacker was to teach you them or at least allow you to understand the moralistic implications behind your actions, both legally and, and general morally speaking. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, there, there's, there's a generational gap where people 
pre, you know, people who grew up with a computer versus people who found a computer in a dumpster and decided to tinker with it kind of thing, 80s, 90s computer people. 80s, 90s people grew up breaking things on purpose and hoping to tell people how to fix it. The late 2000s and on kids grew up with it just implicitly there, and if they broke it, they found a way to make money illicitly. And the, there is a moral compass that's a little different from the intent. And I, I, I like, there's still some classes out there like at UTSA, to, to name drop a little, that actually has a class specifically on the moral and legal implications of your actions in cyber. And oh, I think cool. that's massively important. So you don't yeah. do what I did and then use it. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I'm not saying I, I didn't send it to anybody. It was a test. I want to see <laughs> do it. I want to be abundantly clear. Nobody's getting Dennis ransomware. Hey, um, yeah. No, you know what? It's, it's important. Well, for our listeners, that's not true because Neil's definitely tried. Well, you know what? I, I applaud. <laughs> I, I do applaud, you know, sort of testing the boundaries and understanding, you know, again, going back to this is risk management 101, right? You have to understand what can possibly happen and who can perform those actions. So, so Neil, if you ever come work for Kindrel, we know that we're going to be locking your, down your laptop. And you know, Chris, thank you so much for being able to join us and really dig into this from a philosophical perspective. Uh, Neil, as always, who I will set up a, a you know a, a focal point, and we never <laughs> lean too far into it, but you know, we still were able to grab a lot of your experience and expertise. And I think that's just going to be really valuable for our listeners, which are primarily cybersecurity practitioners and people who are just generally interested in the space. So being able to understand and hear directly from a leader like yourself who understand the importance of empathy and the people perspective is so critical. So I'm just really glad that we're able to share that with you know the audience that we have available. Well, thank you. Thank you, guys. Yeah, I really thank appreciate you again, it. Chris, for jumping in with us today. All righty. And I'll see you at RSA. Thank you. Thank you for joining AZT, an independent series. Your hosts have been Elliot Volkman and Neil Dennis. To learn more about Zero Trust, go to adoptingzerotrust.com. Subscribe to our newsletter or join our Slack community. Viewpoints expressed during the show do not reflect the brands, employers, or companies of our hosts, guests, or potential sponsors.